0: Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 30th episode of the Les Enlumineurs podcast. This certainly feels like a landmark for us, especially as this year marks the 30-year anniversary of the founding of Les Lumière by Sandra Heinemann back in 1991 when the gallery first opened at the Louvre d'Antiquaire in Paris. This also feels like an especially special episode because we're producing this 30th episode on October 28, three days before Halloween on October 1st, So, as our final episode of October, we're going to focus today on a phenomenon found in our text manuscripts, that is, charms. Sometimes taking up the main body of the text or appearing as marginalia, charms are spoken, repetitious words surviving only in texts today. They are essentially synonymous with the terms incantation and spell in English, although all three terms have slightly different social and academic connotations, in the same way that the term magic is often substituted by historians and archaeologists for like terms such as folk ritual or other similar words. The term charm itself is defined as a quote, incantation or magical spell. Uh, by the Oxford English Dictionary, and its root is in the Latin word carmen, meaning a song, verse, or incantation. Charms often combined spoken invocations with ritual action and special materials. With such a fluid and open definition, there are many different types of charms. Whereas amulets are defined by a focus on materials, as we discussed two weeks ago in episode 28, charms, incantations, and spells are defined by a focus on the spoken word or, as it survives into the present, on the text. One fascinating charm type are the Old English metrical charms. There are just about a dozen known charms of this type that have survived into the present day. Metrical charms were sets of instructions generally written to magically resolve a situation or a disease. Usually, these charms involve some sort of physical action, including making a medical potion, repeating a certain set of words, or writing a specific set of those words on an object. Through these metrical charms, we can more easily understand the religious beliefs and practices that pre-Christian, proto-Christian, and transitional Christians in medieval England had. We can also see how the people of that time saw and understood sickness and health. Medical procedures and herbal remedies in these medieval English medical charms are not what we think of today as scientific, but instead they're based on the spiritual qualities that those materials were believed to have. Many of these charms have some pagan qualities, but they are not entirely anti-Christian, with most of the charms including both pagan and Christian characteristics. For example, the Nine Herbs charm, mentions both the Germanic God, Woden, and Jesus Christ. The charm involves the preparation of nine different plants to heal an infected, diseased, or wounded person. The numbers nine and three were significant in German paganism and also in later Germanic lore, and these are mentioned frequently within the charm. The reader is instructed to sing the charm three times over each of the herbs, as well as the apple before they're prepared. The charm must also be sung directly into the mouth of the wounded, into both of their ears, and over the wound itself prior to the application of the herb salve. Here we can see that the combination of repeated spoken words with physical ritual action and special materials form a kind of medical potion combined with incantation. So. These medieval English charms were social and cultural hybrids between pagan and Christian practice. These were not translations of Latin texts, as we so often find with early Old English writing. But instead, these are original texts written in Old English. They survive principally in the collection of medical texts known in modern scholarship as Lacnunga written between the 10th and 11th century, but also in the famous Bald's Leech book from the 10th century. They also survive as marginal notations and additions in other later manuscripts. Medicine in the medieval period was a combination of practical and theoretical knowledge, or perhaps I should say, theological thought. In the pre- or proto-scientific era, the natural world was seen as a vehicle for understanding God who was the creator of that world. Thus, medicine was often spiritual in nature, although medieval people also incorporated their experience and observations into medicine and magic, updating rituals and charms as they needed. I've based these comments around a discussion with Alicia Canizo, who is currently completing a dissertation reconceptualizing transi tombs as status symbols displaying the most cutting-edge developments in medicine and theological thought combined, rather than as simple vanitas sculpture. So, back to the Old English metrical charms, which were used for a multitude of ailments. One of the oldest rediscovered, and thus one of the most well-known charms is the charm called the For a Swarm of Bees Charm. This charm, also known as the Old English Bee Charm, is quite predictably meant to protect one from a swarm of bees. The charm is named for its opening words, with "gembe," meaning against or toward a swarm of bees, and it was discovered in the 19th century. In the most often studied portion of this charm, toward the end where the text of the charm itself is located, the bees are referred to as sigwif or victory women. The word has been associated with the idea of Valkyries and also with the shield maidens or the hosts of female beings attested to in Old Norse literature. This is similar to or identical with the Idse of the Merseburg incantations. The Merseberg incantations are two medieval charms written in Old High German. They're the only known examples of the Germanic pagan belief system preserved in their original language. They were discovered in 1841 in a theological manuscript from Fulda written in the 9th century. Another Old English metrical charm is the Acerbot, a charm known as the charm for unfruitful land. That is, it's intended to heal the lands that have yielded very poorly. There are metrical charms to rid a person of a cyst or skin blemish. There's also the journey charm that asks God and other biblical figures and saints to protect the traveler on a journey. The journey charm reflects the uncertainty and tumultuous, often militant nature of medieval English culture. Luke gives the journeyer a sword, seraphim give him a glorious spear of radiant light, and is well armed with mail and shield too. The text gives us a unique insight into popular religious practices of English culture and the particular rituals prescribed for journeys. The Acerbat charm survives in only one manuscript, the 11th century Corpus Christi College MS41, where it is written into the margins of folios 350 to 353. This text is particularly fascinating because it belongs to the transitional moment between oral tradition and writing. Therefore, the text is marked as transitional literature, a sort of go-between in which oral performances are copied, but some of the performance elements are lost, assumed to be inferred or hinted at in a similar fashion to early church liturgical plays. There are three separate known metrical charms for the loss of cattle. As the title suggests, these incantations were meant to help one find their lost cattle, so this must have been an issue in medieval England. Another metrical charm is to aid in delayed birth. It's a poetic medical text found in the British Library manuscript Harley 585 on folio 185, recto and verso. The delayed birth charm is unique among medieval English medical texts, as it is explicitly for the use and recitation of a woman. However, this charm is possibly misnamed because it deals not with delayed birth as such, but with the inability of the withman or the woman or possibly the midwife for whom it was written to conceive or bring a child to term without miscarriage. Another entertainingly named charm is the charm known as the charm for the water elf disease. This charm is meant to heal the user of a disease which involves pale and ill-looking nails and watery eyes. Hence, it was known as the water elf disease. Of course, there is also the nine herbs charm that we just discussed previously. And finally, out of the dozen charms that we know of in early old English, There is the charm known as the charm for a sudden stitch that describes how to heal a sudden and sharp pain. These are just a few of the charms in Old English that have lasted into the present. However, charms can be found scribbled in the margins of manuscripts or in the full body of text throughout the medieval world in many different languages from Latin to Arabic. Distinguishing charms from prayers is, in fact, a quite difficult task in this regard, because each often involves a plea to a saint or deity for healing. In fact, the genre of verbal magic is so enmeshed that it can be very difficult to separate out charms, blessings, curses, and prayers into distinct categories. Bearing this in mind, we can distinguish charms because they often have a distinctly medical or even healing properties associated with them, or they otherwise invoke non-canonical theology and folk beliefs. So now, let's turn to two different kinds of charms that might expand this definition of the charm type. You can find these on our text manuscript website. Both of these works are now sold, but one of the wonderful aspects of the text manuscript website is that you can find all of our past and present text manuscripts listed on the site. Therefore, the text manuscript site is certainly a place to find newly available works, but it's also a resource for scholarly research and also for curious enthusiasts. The first work I'll discuss is Text Manuscript 797. We have called this the, quote, illustrated textual amulet, a name that I'll unpack for you in just a moment, explaining how this object can be both a charm and an amulet. This is not a manuscript, but instead it's a single illuminated parchment sheet. It was made in the south of France between 1375 and 1425, so much later than the Old English charms we've just been discussing, and it's written in Latin with some Occitan components. It contains extracts from the four gospels, the 66 divine names, and the text of the apocryphal letter of Christ to Abgar, which is also known as the heavenly letter. I find this parchment sheet completely fascinating and visually striking in that the central image surrounded by text bleeds out what appear to be apotropaic red and blue crosses. This parchment sheet has been glued onto a backing. It is written in rounded Southern Gothic book hand in three columns of 55 lines with majuscules highlighted in pale yellow and again those numerous red and blue crosses. There are two to three line alternately red or blue initials, one four-line parted red and blue initial, and a large illustration of the Arma Christi calling on our attention in the center. The image is mostly in shades of brown, with touches of color, pale green and yellow, with brighter red and blue, surrounded by a frame inscribed with holy texts that are separated by those red and blue crosses. It depicts Christ as the man of sorrows, shown three-quarter length in his tomb, his eyes shut, his arms crossed, still bleeding from the wounds on his hands and side, with the three soldiers at the tomb sprawled out on the grass below. With their eyes open, they are surrounded by the instruments of the Passion. These include the Sudarium, with the image of Christ's face prominently drawn in the center at the top, There's also a hammer, a pincer with one nail, three dice, the bag of money, a ladder, the cross, clothes, the cock of denial on a column, a trumpet, the sun and moon. There's also four floating hands that are intended to show both the exchange of money and the washing of the hands. There's a knife with Malchus's ear, the reed and spittle, the pillar of flagellation with vinegar and gall, the shroud, lanterns and torches, and also the sword of Peter, and finally, the disembodied head at the bottom of two blasphemers. These instruments of the Passion are known as the arma Christi, that is, the arms or weapons of Christ. They had a dual meaning to the medieval believer. Like the cross itself, they were symbols of the resurrection and Christ's victory over death, but they were equally objects that conveyed Christ's human suffering and sacrifice. Especially in the later Middle Ages, meditating on the objects associated with the Passion enabled believers to share in Christ's suffering. By the 14th century, indulgences were promised to the believer who gazed on the images of the Arma Christi daily. Closely paralleling the composition of the image on this sheet is the painting of the Man of Sorrows with the Arma Christi often dated to about 1354 by the Neapolitan painter Roberto Odersi active in the second half of the 14th century. This painting is now at the Fogg Museum at Harvard. The arrangement of the motifs is strikingly similar, although Mary and John flanking the tomb on either side in Roberto's panel, as in many other images of the Man of Sorrows, are absent in our sheet. The prominence of the three soldiers depicted in the grass at the bottom of our sheet is also a distinctive detail that sets it apart from other examples. Roberto's panel shows only the head of one soldier at the bottom, and he's shown sleeping with his eyes closed. It seems possible that the artist of our sheet, who was working in southern France, was familiar with Italian depictions of the Man of Sorrows accompanied by the Arma Christi. Although we are unable to provide a precise attribution, this artist was certainly a professional, as was the scribe. Many textual amulets on sheets of parchment were crudely written and were probably homemade. This example, in contrast, was certainly written and decorated by a professional scribe and artist. Medieval charms on paper or parchment survive in limited numbers since they lacked the protection of libraries that ensured their survival of other types of manuscripts and documents. The formality of the text and image are exceptional here, especially compared with those other charms and amulets in sheet format, and again which were often copied by less skilled lay people rather than professional scribes. Selections from each of the four gospels are copied in the upper right and upper left sides of the sheet on either side of the central miniature. The choice of passages is significant. The beginning of the Gospel of John was believed to be protection from demons and evil throughout the Middle Ages. The passage from Mark is an account of the resurrection. The passage from Luke describes the Annunciation when Mary is visited by the angel and receives the news that she will bear a son, and the news that her cousin Elizabeth has also miraculously conceived. These two passages focusing on birth, one on rebirth, as well as two actual holy births, were often included in charms and amulets for childbearing. The last excerpt from Matthew describes healing miracles. Jesus healing Peter's mother of a fever and then healing and casting out devils from many others. The passages from Mark, Luke, and Matthew all begin in Illo Tempore the words spoken at the beginning of the gospel readings during mass and their text as well suggests the source was probably a gospel lectionary or a missal rather than a Bible. It also includes opening verses of a hymn in honor of the Virgin Mary. The rubric, although now partially illegible, almost certainly promised that saying these verses was useful in case You died before properly confessing, a subject we talked about in our last podcast episode on the Office of the Dead. Importantly, the parchment sheet also includes the 66 divine names. The tradition of reciting divine names as an act of devotion and to invoke protection from various evils is known in many different cultures, including in the Christian Middle Ages, and texts such as this one are frequently found in formulas for verbal magic. The list given here is of the 66 names of Christ, each separated by a cross. The image of the cross was itself apotropaic, and the crosses would also ordinarily prompt the reader to make the sign of the cross as they recited the holy names, or could even act as a tactile target, inviting touch of the parchment as the names were recited. The list of sacred names is prefaced by that rubric in Occitan, which was the language of southern France in the Middle Ages. It explains the usefulness of the text and promises that carrying the text and the painted image of the Arma Christi will bring protection from sudden death and the perils of dying without the sacraments of the church. The wording seems important for us here, because carrying this object is specified, and it doesn't mention reading or reciting the text or even gazing on the image. Thus. While this text could have been and likely was read aloud as a charm, the rubric underlines an amuletic function of the names and the image in this case. However, this object allows us to understand the distinction in function between amulets and talismans and charms and spells. Charms are a verbal magic that engages with the content of the object or page, while an amulet or talisman is an instance of material magic that relies on presence and hidden disengaged knowledge. Finally, there is the apocryphal letter of Christ to King Abgar V of Edessa. That's also known as the heavenly letter. This text and the inclusion of the 66 names pushes this object out of the realm of canonical prayer and into the realms of charms and folk incantation. King Abgar was the first king converted to Christianity, according to the Syriac tradition. He was suffering from an incurable illness perhaps leprosy, and wrote to Jesus stating that he believed in his divinity and wished to be healed. He also offered Jesus asylum. Jesus's reply is included on our parchment sheet here. In this letter, Jesus does not accept Abgar's offer, but says that he will send one of his disciples to heal him. The letter, included in Eusebius of Caesarea's text, the Historia Ecclesiastica, was popular in both the Orthodox and Catholic Church, and was often copied on separate parchment sheets to serve as amulets just like this parchment sheet here. The rubric that we have specifies that carrying this copy of the letter will provide protection from all evils and dangers. Don Skemmer wrote an important work on textual amulets. He defines textual amulets as, quote, generally brief apotropaic texts written or mechanically printed on separate sheets, rolls, and scraps of parchment or paper, end quote. These provided protection when worn or placed anywhere on the body, serving as, quote, a renewable source of Christian empowerment, end quote. Three of the rubrics state that the texts will provide protection when they are carried. The gospel extracts, the names of Christ, and the letter of Christ to King Abgar are all found in other medieval amulets. The French, or possibly Burgundian, early 15th century amulet roll described by Skemmer, for example, includes similar texts. John one one to fourteen, Mark sixteen seventeen to eighteen, Luke eleven twenty seven to eight, and Matthew eight fourteen to seventeen, as well as a different list of divine names separated by crosses and the letter to Abgar. However. John Skemmer characterizes this role as both an amulet and a charm, likely held close to the body, but also unfurled and read aloud as it was wrapped around the stomach of a pregnant person. Importantly, the layout of this sheet with the image in the center surrounded by texts of equal dimensions on both sides show that this was always an independent sheet, that it was folded into a small square, and the fold marks are still visible, and carried around or placed in a small pouch and worn it likely reflected a similar dual function to the role for a pregnant woman described by Skemmer in his article Amulet Roles and Female Devotion in the Late Middle Ages, which you can find linked in the show notes below. The texts on this parchment sheet are charms and not just prayers, in my opinion, for a few reasons. A charm can include prayer, but prayer can't include a charm, because acceptable Roman Catholic prayer must be purely canonical, meaning it can't include things from texts that the church doesn't approve of. Many of the charms found on this parchment sheet are also found on rolls that were specifically used for childbirth, and it is possible that the main function of this particular sheet was to aid a pregnant person through this tumultuous time. However, since there is no specific mention of childbirth in the text or rubrics here, it may have been carried just to provide general protection from evil and also to help ensure salvation. This association with childbirth and women's health brings us to our final object, a text manuscript that you can find on our text manuscript website as TM1059. This is the Orezione Devotissima, a set of devotional prayers written in Italian in central Italy between 1475 and 1500. It was written in gray ink, in a fine rounded Gothic book hand, in a single column on 18 lines, with rubrics in red, capitals touched with red, three two-line initials in burnished gold on ground painted in red, blue and green, the first of which is further decorated with hairline tendrils terminating in two byzants and a leaf in burnished gold. There is also, fascinatingly, a medallion with a grinning skull in a starry landscape painted in gold, blue, and green in the bas de page on folio 2. This delightful Italian prayer book has a rich history. It was commissioned in the 15th century for a young noblewoman, and it was later owned by a Dutch merchant living in Venice who used it, in part, to teach his son to read. The young laywoman or girl, who commissioned this manuscript, lived in central Italy at the end of the 15th century. The owner identifies herself as a girl with the word filiola, and throughout the text, all adjectives referring to the person praying use feminine forms. The use of the definite article lo instead of el, as well as certain words, such as cicerata, meaning unfortunate, exclude an origin in Venice, where the manuscript was found in the 17th century after it fell into the possession of that Dutch merchant. The prayers included here appear to be unrecorded, and are probably unique, composed for the personal use of the book's original owner. The woman who commissioned the manuscript might have been named Gabriella Marcella, as that erased name appears on folio 1. This manuscript contains three long prayers in Italian, which might be unique and composed for personal use and the circumstances of the original owner. They beseech the Lord to give remission for the supplicant's present and future sins and aid her soul in escaping purgatory. The volume is accordingly decorated with that beautiful skull on the frontispiece. Medieval prayer books as a genre as opposed to books of ours, have been relatively neglected in the scholarly literature, and indeed medieval prayers themselves, present in both books like this and in some books of ours, are a relatively underexplored field. That is certainly the case with vernacular prayers from Italy. It is at present still difficult to identify them or to gauge accurately their popularity in the manuscript tradition. Nonetheless, they represent both a rich literary source and one of our most important direct witnesses to what recently historians have called traditional religion. As non-canonical texts, though, that required recitation and oralization—that is, reading aloud—to be most effective, the texts included in this manuscript can be conceived of in their entirety as charms. This manuscript perfectly articulates the murky boundary between religious worship and magical practice in the medieval period. The people who read or recited these texts saw themselves as weak and vulnerable creatures in a hostile and hazardous world. They turned to ritual recitation and verbal magic for help in avoiding or surviving the dangers and crises of everyday life. For the Christian texts we have just examined, the scribes and users blurred prayers with the properties of charms and incantations, sometimes also in enduing them with an amuletic function, carrying them on their person, but still interacting with them and saying them at various times to enhance their efficacy. So that's all for this episode on Medieval Charms. Now, our podcast family is expanding, and it would be really helpful for us if you could subscribe and rate the podcast in your podcast app. You can access the podcast really through any app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. To subscribe, you just need to click the plus sign icon at the top of your podcast player. We would also love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you know something about verbal magic or charms that you would like to share, let us know. You can find out more about the manuscripts discussed on textmanuscripts.com, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Les Manures. Remember to keep an eye out for new acquisitions, because you never know where charms might be hiding in medieval texts. So that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and happy Halloween.